Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hello, everybody. Now, any time a young child goes missing, it catches the attention of the news and, of course, carves a terrible hole into our community's psyche. But for no particular reason, every once in a while, a missing child becomes the poster child for missing children. A case that just gets out in front and stays there for decades. Such was the case of Tiffany Papish, an eight-year-old girl from Maple Heights who took a walk to her neighborhood's convenience store one carefree summer day in 1980 and never made it back home. But here's what makes this case even more complicated. Four years after Tiffany disappeared, a man confessed to killing her. And on that confession alone, a confession he quickly recanted, by the way, they found him guilty and put him away for life. There was no body, no weapon found, no crime scene, no eyewitnesses. So we are calling Tiffany's disappearance an Ohio mystery, not only because we still don't know where she is, but because there is widespread speculation the police might have got the wrong guy, and Tiffany's real killer walked free. So let me tell you her story, and you decide. Tiffany Jennifer Papish was born in 1971 and grew into a sweet, precocious third grader who everyone called TJ. She had medium-length brown hair, blue eyes, and an ever-present smile that revealed dimples and a gap between her two front teeth. She was learning to roller skate and loved to read and study spelling. She usually collected all A's on her report card. She saw herself becoming a teacher someday. She lived with her 39-year-old dad, Frank, and her stepmom, Debbie, who had raised her since she was four years old. And she lived with her two brothers, 14-year-old Ricky and two-year-old Frank. Tiffany didn't know it yet, but Debbie was pregnant and just a few months away from giving Tiffany another sibling. They lived together in a modest three-bedroom ranch-style home in Maple Heights, a suburb of Cleveland. Tiffany was a month away from her ninth birthday on June 13, 1980. It was a Friday, and the Papishes were about three hours away from hitting the road for a weekend camping trip but they needed hamburger buns. Teenage Ricky usually ran the errands to the store, but he was busy collecting sleeping bags for the trip. So Tiffany went to the convenient food mart. It was just around the corner, a five-minute round trip tops. Tiffany was wearing shorts, blue sneakers, and a red and blue t-shirt that said, let's face it, I'm cute. At the store, she was in line to the cashier, when Tiffany allowed another woman to cut in front. Then Tiffany paid for her hamburger buns and walked out of the store just behind the other woman. It was about 2.45 p.m. I can't stress enough, Tiffany was literally just a couple hundred yards from her front door. She didn't make it. Her family noticed her absence immediately. 
when what should have been a five-minute trip turned into 20 minutes, that was it. They began to search. But at first, they had to search alone. Tiffany's father, Frank, who was still at work when his daughter vanished, later told reporters that when he called police, they said he had to wait 24 hours to file a report. Too many runaways, they said. That rule has changed since then, but it was in effect and apparently enforced in 1980. Frank said Tiffany was eight years old. She wouldn't even visit a neighbor without asking. No way she would just walk off, he told reporters. Ain't no way. When Maple Heights police did join the hunt, they brought out tracker dogs and took them on a tour of vacant properties and wooded lots, but without success. They tried looking for that woman who left the store just ahead of Tiffany. Maybe she had seen something. She was about 50 years old, drove a blue car, had short brown hair. But despite news stories asking her to come forward, they could never identify her. They also circulated a composite drawing of a man who had attacked a 12-year-old girl a year earlier, just in case they had a repeat offender on their hands. They found a guy who sort of matched the drawing, and they questioned him, but they quickly gave up on the idea that that drawing was going to lead to anything helpful. A week after Tiffany disappeared, Frank Papish's employer put up a $50,000 reward. That was a huge reward back then. Daniel Dezina, he was president of Granger Sales and Equipment, where Frank was a sales manager. They rebuilt diesel engines. Dezina said he hoped the cash reward would be enough to convince someone to come forward. But no one did, at least not the right people. Meanwhile, the Papish family circulated 2,000 flyers with Tiffany's picture, description, and the promise of that reward. And psychics joined the hunt. Tiffany's dad called it a desperation move, but he didn't care. He said, my mind is open. Of course, police looked at the family. Tiffany's father was cleared as a suspect in her case early in the investigation. And Tiffany's stepmother passed a polygraph and was also cleared. Two weeks after Tiffany's disappearance, still no sign of her, police said they didn't have a shred of evidence to say whether she was even dead or alive. Frank Papish spent his days and nights waiting for the telephone to ring. At first, he would rush people off the line to keep it free. Then finally, he just installed a second phone in the living room so others could use that and stay off the main line. He put her photograph next to the phone. I know that if she gets to a phone, she'll call me, Frank said. Also in the living room, a brand new police scanner blaring around the clock. They weren't waiting for a ransom call, at least not anymore. The FBI said it was not likely to come this late. But in January, seven months after Tiffany vanished, they did get a strange phone call. An anonymous woman said she saw someone dump a body in the Bedford Reservation of Cleveland Metro Parks about the time Tiffany had gone missing. So Frank Papish gathered up about 100 volunteers 
to go and search the snow-covered park. They spent three hours looking, and I found a news report that said they found a convenient Food Mart shopping bag under the snow. But that was all. No indication it had belonged to Tiffany, and certainly no Tiffany. Three months after Tiffany's disappearance, Frank's search had become a crusade. He formed a committee called People for Justice and began to lobby for tougher penalties for kidnapping. He even contacted Governor James Rhodes to push for legislation that would make kidnapping a capital offense. And it was a big election season. He campaigned that fall to state officials that were up and down that ballot. Eventually, Frank was laid off from his job. He did not want to go back. He wanted to work on Tiffany's case full time. And yet, Tiffany's case only grew colder. Until 1983. That was four years after Tiffany vanished, and a man named Brandon Lee Flagner came forward to confess that he raped her, murdered her, and dismembered her. At the time of his confession, Flagner was already behind bars. He was serving time in a Texas prison for child molestation. There were multiple victims in that case, all from Texas, all girls under the age of 10. And they bravely testified against him at trial and told of how he threatened them with violence. As for Tiffany, Flagner wrote his confession in letters that he sent to a Mennonite minister in Worcester, Ohio. That's the same county where he used to work. It might have been someone he knew. I couldn't confirm that. When the FBI showed up in prison to talk to him about it. Flagner said he abducted Tiffany from the street, drove her to a wooded area next to a local school, and then gave this gruesome account where he said he shot her in the head accidentally while assaulting her, and that he ate parts of her body before disposing of the pieces throughout Ohio. He also mentioned a scar on Tiffany's knee, and that was not generally known to the public. Flagner confessed over and over. He even wrote a couple other ministers and a television station sharing details about what he said he'd done. In all, police collected 30 confessions from him. The problem is, they didn't match. Many of his statements contradicted each other. And then, suddenly, he recanted them all. He said he was almost done with his time in that Texas jail, but didn't want to be released. He wanted to stay in jail. And his confession to Tiffany's murder would assure him a lifetime residence in some facility. Now, even though Flagner changed his mind about that confession, he got his original wish. In June of 1985, he was convicted of aggravated murder and kidnapping based on his confession alone. He was sentenced to life in prison by a Cuyahoga County judge. There were certainly some things about Flagner that made him seem like a good suspect. He told investigators he had molested more than 400 children. It was a number they didn't quite believe, but they didn't doubt that he was a predator. He also had an opportunity, sort of. 
You see, Flagner grew up in Elyria. That's not far from Maple Heights. He had a record. He'd been arrested in 1978 for burglary and sentenced to five years, but he only served 16 months and was back out on the street three months before Tiffany vanished. He also worked himself into the case. This is something investigators will tell you is a common thing with killers. He became actively involved in her search, and he even approached the Papish family offering to sell T-shirts with Tiffany's picture as a way to raise awareness and funds for the search. But that got weird. Weird enough that the Papish family had him arrested and the police warmed him. Some say this proximity to the case may be why he knew about Tiffany's scar on her knee. There was some other odd behavior. After Tiffany's disappearance, Flagner asked his wife and brother to destroy a metal box in the trunk of his car, a box that contained, among other things, some children's clothing. By this time, he was telling people Tiffany's dad had hired him to find her killer, but that he thought her dad was really responsible for the crime. But, and this is a big but, Flagner's time card shows he was at work at a manufacturer called Staco in Creston, Ohio, up until about 30 minutes before Tiffany vanished back on June 13. That was some 50 miles away from Maple Heights in rural Wayne County. Investigators offered that eh, maybe one of his co-workers stamped his time card for him. But that was just a guess because certainly none of the employees there owned up to doing such a thing. Besides, the Staco officials told police Flagner worked a line that needed five people to function. He couldn't just leave and not be replaced. And so, to this day, there are some investigators and some members of Tiffany's family who have lived with a nagging feeling that someone else, maybe just someone else, was responsible for whatever happened to Tiffany. At its core, the only case against Flagner is that he had originally confessed to it. Now, Flagner is still in jail. I found a Facebook page called Prisoners Who Need Love and Pen Pals and a post that was made in August of 2016 by an account to an H. Brandon Flagner. Of course, I have no way of knowing if it's authentic, but it does seem so. In the somewhat long post, Flagner noted the long list of evidence that was missing in his case. No body, no crime scene, no murder weapon, no witness. He said he made his confession out of fear and coercion. He said he was beaten by the arresting officers. This seems really odd, especially since he confessed freely in writing to multiple sources. But he also pointed out that alibi at work, which to some people seemed kind of airtight. He went on to say some people think Tiffany may still be alive, that the state has never filed a death certificate on her, that missing child databases have added age-progressed photos of her, and that people reported seeing her years after she vanished. I don't think 
anybody close to this case really believes that Tiffany is still alive. Now, Flagner said he was seeking to raise $30,000 for his legal fund, and he said, and here's his quote, I did not commit this crime. Nobody believes I committed this crime, yet I am still in prison for a murder that nobody believes happened. Certainly, nobody has any real interest in releasing Flagner. If he indeed sexually assaulted hundreds of children, he's probably where he should be. But pinning Tiffany's murder on him, if he's innocent, would mean a real killer got away with a deed. Frank Papish went to his grave in 1993, not knowing what happened to his daughter. He died of a heart ailment that his brothers, Ed and John, said appeared after Tiffany vanished. They said he struggled with losing her, and it tore him up physically every day. John Papish said it drove him crazy not to be able to put a closure to his daughter's death. And I have just a couple of side notes to this story. In 1990, Flagner was in the news again. This time, he was being transferred from the prison in Lucasville to a new one in Mansfield, where officials discovered he had a collection of some 1,000 photos of nude and partially nude children. He had hidden them in store catalogs, file folders, and other things that they were moving with his belongings. Strangely, this report said the officials sorted the photos, burned the questionable ones, and returned to him those that he could demonstrate he had clipped from magazines and such. Anyway, he was in the headlines once again in 2001, this time in a dispute over the religious rights of prison inmates. Flagner had converted while in prison. He became a Hasidic Jew in 1991, and he sued the state of Ohio for forcing him to cut his beard and sideburns. The state argued that grooming rules were in place to stop inmates from hiding things in long beards. In a story about that, Tiffany's uncle, John Papish, told a reporter he had nothing but bitterness in his heart for Flagner and added, I'll go to my grave hating him. He's lucky I'm not cutting his beard. I couldn't find the outcome of that suit, but I have seen more recent pictures of Flagner, and he's got a very long beard and sideburns, so I'm assuming he won. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. 
Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.